or are you absolute legends? Welcome back to another episode of A Need to Read. I haven't uploaded for a month, so just very briefly, I'd just like to say thanks for your patience, everyone. Um, I don't think an apology is really due, because, you know, can you blame me for, for not really being able to think about work so much at the moment? Things are pretty mental. Um, I have to have two jobs now, which I don't know if you've ever had two jobs, it's pretty intense. Um, so yeah, I'm back. That's the important thing. I've got some cool conversations for you. First of the cool conversations is going to be with Nicola Fox Hamilton. And that's going to be on this episode today. We're talking about the psychology of online behavior. Talk about things like the psychology of dick pics. Talk about online versus offline communication. Uh, how Tinder changed the online dating world and what online dating looks like for men and women and how that differs. There's a lot of cool things in this podcast and I'm really excited for you to have a listen to. Now, Nicola is a lecturer in cyber psychology. She's got an Audible original that's come out recently called The Psychology of Online Behaviour, uh, which covers a variety of different topics, which can be summed up pretty concisely and just your online behavior whatever you do when you're online however you behave whether that's with dating whether that's with shopping gaming or cyber crimes or just general social media use it covers all of that and i think it's something that's worth knowing about you'll finish it and you'll feel smarter and hopefully that'll be the same for this conversation today and if it is you know feel free to share it tell your friends make them smart as well what it's all about share the love Uh, before we get into the episode just very quickly i want to say you need therapy i know that that sounds a little bit rude i know that people don't like it when they tell that they need therapy but it's probably quite true right chatting with a professional about your mental health specifically if you're struggling and even if you're not is a wholly good idea there are ways that humans get in their own ways There are ways that stuff get in the way of humans that's completely out of their control. I don't know what the split is there, but there is a good chance that if you go to therapy, you'll be able to get out of your own way, leaving only the obstacles of society, which is a better place than where you started, right? So if you're thinking about going to therapy, after I just told you to go, then head to BetterHelp, check out what they've got to offer, All you have to do is run through a quick 5-10 to minute questionnaire. They will then match you with a therapist within 48 hours. And then you can just start chatting. How amazing is that with a professional? You get 10% off as a need to read listener. All you'd have to do is head to betterhelp.com forward slash need to read. And that's where you get your questionnaire, your 10% off. And uh, yeah, it helps you support the podcast as well. Because guess what? This podcast needs bloody supporting. Another way you can do that is by Buy Me A Coffee. It's a pretend coffee. It's an online coffee. And it's through buymeacoffee.com forward slash need to read. And the link for that will be in the description if you fancied it. I'd really appreciate your support um, because, you know, the economy is in turmoil. And uh, it looks like I'm going to follow suit if people don't buy me coffees. Uh, well, that might be made up. But, you know, the important thing is if you want to buy me a coffee, I'd appreciate it. And I'd love you for it. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you enjoy it, don't forget, it's only a coffee. Nicola, thank you very much for joining me today. Um, I've had a great time listening through to your psychology of online behavior on on Audible. Congratulations for getting that out. Um, Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's really 
a pleasure to be able to chat to someone who knows about cyber psychology, but it'd be good for people listening to kind of get a general understanding about what that term means and what your work in that space is. So essentially what it is, is, you know, the psychology of what happens whenever we interact with technology or interact with each other through technology. So what effect it has on it? Does it change us? Do we behave differently? Um, do we communicate differently with other people and so on? It's a really broad field. So it spans everything from virtual reality, which itself is a huge field, you know, in terms of you can look at the psychological applications of VR therapy and research to how people interact in games. It's everything to do with, you know, the psychology of artificial intelligence, how we interact with it. It's about how we communicate, how we present ourselves, who we are online. Um, it's about gaming. It's about screen time. It's about, you know, how much time we spend online and whether or not that impacts on our mental health and our well-being. It is just a huge, huge field. Um, and it's a fascinating field and it's always changing, which is one of the things that I love about it. There's always new things to learn. Um, so what I do is I teach across a broad range of the field. So I have a certificate in cyber psychology, which is an introduction to kind of everything, a little bit of everything. And then I also run a master's in cyber psychology and teach on that, which is obviously a much deeper look at some of the core areas and then some of those key areas in it as well. Um, so they're both in the Institute of Art, Design and Technology in um, Dublin. Oh, very nice. And I imagine the landscape's changed quite a lot from when you got into it. So when, when did you first start studying it? So I did the master's that I now run in 2009 to 2011. And it has changed a lot, even in my research area, which is online dating. So I started with my master's thesis project, um, being interested in that area. And like Tinder didn't exist. So it was traditional online dating sites. And I went on to do a PhD and Tinder really kind of messed up my data collection process a bit because <laughs> I was interested in what people writing about themselves in their dating profiles. And of course, Tinder bios are really short. You know, on average, the word count was a lot longer before. Um, and once Tinder came along and really became mainstream, everybody started writing less, even on the normal dating sites. Um, so that made my life a bit more difficult. Um, but everything has changed. You know, the, the way that we use social media, the amount we use social media, gaming, you know, the amount we're using technology for work. It just it's changed so much. And then some fundamental things have stayed kind of similar the whole time as well. OK, what, what have you noticed remain the same? Well, it's kind of. A lot of how we communicate, even though we're communicating more and we have more tools for communication in terms of, you know, it used to be just through text and then it was text and emoticons and then emoji and now GIFs and then video and voice notes. But a lot of the principles of how we communicate and the things that we do remain the same. Um, it's a little richer than it was, which is good, but a lot of the principles remain the same about how we communicate. Mm. And, and you say Tinder kind of got in the way of that research, just going, going back to that. Was that in the days of like eHarmony or like every now and then you'd see an advert and it wasn't really aimed at people in their 20s, like online dating kind of seems to be now? Yeah, so Tinder really changed the demographic that were interested in online dating. It was traditionally people kind of 30 and above because what happens when you hit your 30s is um, most people are coupled up. Uh, so about 80% of people are already in couples. That leaves a smaller dating pool available to you. And so people started <laughs> to look for new uh, ways to find people. And online dating was great for that because it obviously expands the potential pool available to you. 
But then Tinder came along and gamified it and made it fun and made it portable. So it was on your phone instead of on a website that you sat down at a computer for. And people could do it together in groups with their friends and it was entertaining. It was a way to alleviate boredom as well as finding a partner. And so it opened it up to a group of people who didn't need to use it, but who wanted to use it. And it's actually changed some of the dynamics about how people approach dating in general now. Just anecdotally from talking to young people, and it'd be a really interesting area to study, is the fact that a lot of young people now see or dating apps as the space for dating. Whereas going out with friends is a space for going out with friends. Whereas in the past, people would have gone out with friends with the hope of maybe meeting somebody while they were also out. And people are less interested in that now. They're more interested in focusing on what they're doing with their friends while they're out um, and then saving dating for that that specific space. Which I guess is kind, kind of a positive thing, but not so much if you want to be used to talking to strangers without having a panic attack. <laughs> <laughs> Although a lot of people use online dating as a way to practice flirting and talking to people and they find it quite helpful for that. So it's a way to be able to approach people. If you're socially anxious, approaching somebody in public, you know, being potentially rejected in publish, public is quite difficult. On a dating app, you can assume that most people are probably single. Most people, um, not everybody, but they're open to some kind of relationship. So there's that barrier is gone. It's easier to approach them. If you're rejected, usually they'll just ignore you rather than reject you. So it's not as harsh. It's not in public. It's not to your face. Um, so it's the barriers to ask somebody out are actually lower. So it can be helpful for people who are a little bit socially anxious um, to practice that way and then to meet people in real life from that. So that initial barrier is gone. It makes it easier for them. Yeah, it's really interesting because that must have changed the whole dating landscape like all over the world to allowing people just to practice which it seems a bit strange doesn't it to just like why don't you just practice dating but online <laughs> well, i think a lot of people have found it hard to walk up to a stranger and ask them out or start a conversation um and it's also probably more difficult these days because people are more aware or you would hope that most people are more aware about respecting people's personal space and what they're doing you know if you're in the gym you're there to work out most of the time you're not there to flirt and meet somebody and so there's less spaces available now for that but there's more specific spaces where you know that those approaches are more welcome and so that also makes it easier for people I think um, to approach somebody online um, and of course you know, a lot of people meet online, not all of them meet through online dating. So the last piece of research, really big research looking at this, found that about half of people met through online dating. It's probably higher than half now. But people meet on social media, through the comment sections, on newspapers, on Twitter, like all sorts of different places. Gaming is a really big one um, because mm -hmm. people form communities in gaming and they get to know people and they make friends that way. And then sometimes those translate into romantic relationships. So there's a lot of ways for people to meet online. Um, that are really positive. Yeah, definitely. And I think with gaming, that's such an interesting thing because when I was younger, it was when like Xbox Live first came out when I was just getting into being a teenager and my like communication with friends went from, you know, meeting up with them after school to meeting them on Xbox Live after school and playing Halo or Call of Duty or whatever it was and all shouting at each other and like having fun, I guess. Like, and I th I'm right in assuming that that's a, uh, how a lot of teenagers are getting their social fix right now. Absolutely. Um, it was fantastic during lockdowns. 
a lot mm. of people started gaming who had never gamed before. A lot of people who are gamers started playing different games so that they could play with friends and family who weren't gamers. Um, so they started playing more simple games, more relaxed games, less competitive. Um, and so many people found it hugely beneficial. They found community and belonging and a sense of connection there. And young people in particular, but like anyone who games, it's pretty much one of the biggest entertainment industries in the world. There are over a billion gamers in the world, a huge number of people mm. doing it. And they really enjoy it. It's entertaining. But most of all, it's primarily social. A lot of people game because of the social aspect of it. Um, and it's hugely important. And people identify as being a gamer. They form communities on there. Um, they meet friends. They meet new partners. Like it's it's a hugely positive influence in most people's lives, which is one of the reasons why I get very annoyed about all of the negative headlines about gaming, because gaming is actually a really positive thing. And if so many people are doing it and we haven't had this outbreak of disastrous results from it, you know, it's probably fine. <laughs> Yeah, people want to pathologize it. You said something quite interesting in, in one of the lectures about how there's been this kind of hysteria around tech and that started with like the radio and I, I, probably the newspaper before that. I, yeah, Plato had it about writing that it would cause forgetfulness in the souls of men or something. You know, if you write everything down, you don't have to remember it anymore. It goes way back with every new technology and particularly communication technologies, but other kinds as well. The bicycle um, allowed women freedom. They didn't have to be accompanied by a man. So that was hugely problematic. Um, film, novels, novels were going to destroy women's minds. There were a lot of things around women initially. They were the early moral panics, women and children. Nowadays, it tends to be mostly children um, because, yeah. you know, women are viewed as more independent, thankfully, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and able to look after ourselves. But a lot of the moral panic about something like radio, you know, the headlines are practically identical to what you see about screen time or gaming now. And when you look at things about gaming in particular, you know, that, that um, you know, school shooters were gamers or whatever. School shooters are less likely to be gamers than the general population of their age because gaming's social and they are not social. So they're less likely to play those video games than other people. It's something that tends to come out when the school shooter is white people are blamed on video games when they're black they don't so it's quite a racist trope on top of being a moral panic about digital technology wow you can always uh find racist to get get excuses for the for the crazy white guy right <laughs> who, who else can we blame yeah exactly that's that's interesting because a lot of people look at stuff like gaming and and we've said like they, they see it as quite a negative thing, but there's there's faults in being able to make a claim about it being negative, right? Because you're a big advocate of thinking critically about this because, you know, you're an academic, you're best at <laughs> yeah. thinking critically. Um, what's the trouble with collecting data around like tech's impact on, on well-being? So there's a few different problems. Um, one of them is the kind of data that has traditionally been collected. So what we have done for years is mostly because there was a lack of other options, but we asked people, you know, how often do you game? How long do you spend gaming? Um, or how often do you spend uh, time on social media? How long do you spend on social media? How often do you check in every day? That kind of thing. When these are things that you do a lot, when they're integrated in your day and you spend a lot of time doing them, we are notoriously bad at estimating that use. And 
our own emotional state and mental health influences how we perceive our time spent doing these things. So if you're depressed or socially anxious or anxious, you can either feel that you're spending more time or less time, depending on how you're feeling. Um, and so what they were really measuring was a perception of time spent on these things. And then they were correlating them with mental health outcomes like anxiety and depression and so on. And saying that one thing calls the other, which of course you can't with correlations. Correlations just mean two things have a relationship. Um, one doesn't cause the other. Uh, one may cause the other or vice versa, but we don't actually know that because you haven't set up an experiment to test it. And there were very few experiments to test any of these things. So what has, and also the, there was an, this idea that researchers were kind of cherry picking their results. So when they found significant results, they were the ones they talked about and they didn't report on the ones that weren't significant. Um, so there was a bit of a bias towards finding issues. And then the media gets hold of those results and blows them up into ridiculous things. So there's a really good example that just came out in the last few days of a study that was done using mice and blue light. And the mice were exposed to a number of hours, I think it was, of concentrated blue light. And because of that, it disrupted their hormones. Um, and the headlines are something like children going through, won't go through puberty or will go through puberty earlier or later. Or it'll disrupt their puberty if they use screens at night. And it's like, well, nobody has four hours of blue light in their face before bed. Also, people aren't mice. <laughs> so it just it gets blown up into something that it wasn't originally in the first place. And that's problematic because that's the stuff that people read. Most people don't read the journal articles at all because they're dense and they're difficult to read and the statistics are complicated. Um, so what you read is what's reported in the media and what's reported in the media often bears no resemblance to the original research or its opinions or what mm. people call common sense, which is just anecdotal and not actually related to the evidence. Yeah. It's something I've like come to realize recently about any kind of research is thinking about what are the implications of, of the findings? Like what's the implication of finding that blue light's harmful to your eyes? Like, well, we've got some glasses for you that might help. Um, I've, I've noticed it more in like positive psychology and sort of like policy implications. Um, but I think it's one of those things, once you see it, you, you start kind of seeing it everywhere. Um, yeah. it's, do you think that plays a part? Like, is, is the, do we, can we tell where the funding's coming from? Yeah. And sometimes it's even more complicated than just where the funding's coming from. You know, you've got obvious things, you know, if a company sponsors a piece of research, it's more likely for the research to find um, findings that they like. Um, so that's across the board. That's why people have to declare their, their conflicts of interest. But you see things like people whose whole reputation is built on saying, say, social media is terrible for young people and they've sold books and they make a lot of money on the interview circuit and their whole thing is it's terrible. And they cherry pick the research to support that and they ignore the research that doesn't support it. Um, and they even cherry pick results out of research that, you know, in general wouldn't support what they're saying, but find the things okay. that do. Um, so stuff like that really bothers me. And that's where there is a conflict of interest, but it's maybe not so obvious to the everyday person. Um, so it's it's difficult for people to understand what information is accurate and what isn't. And a lot of the academics doing extremely good work aren't necessarily so much in the media as the people who are, you know, making lots of money from media work. Yeah, I've had I've had this kind of 
topic come up a couple of times and I, I spoke to um Rory O'Connor um who works in Glasgow is a suicide um behavior researcher and I spoke to him about the social dilemma because it's, it's such a like a moral panic around the amount of time people are spending on social media and the impact that's having on their mental health and, and he pointed out it's like well this also correlates quite well with the financial crash in 2008 that there was a, a rise from that and it's just looking that little bit beneath the surface to see if there's anything else that's, yeah. that's there right and there's a lot of things um you know social media is a really easy answer particularly for politicians because they mm. can do campaigns like in ireland we had a campaign about talk to your friends and family you know check in if they're okay it's like well what if they tell you that they're feeling suicidal like mm. we're not equipped to deal with stuff like that we need proper mental health care and we don't have it not just assessment but actual care yeah and we don't have that and the resources aren't there to spend on that um and so it's a really easy answer instead of looking like things like the financial crashes um things like the level of poverty and the wealth gap in countries you know the recent piece of research that came out about the UK that found out that it's actually a poor society with a few very wealthy people like the people living on the poorer end of the UK society are poorer than those or have worse living standards than those in Slovenia so there's um, that that's going to affect people's mental health poverty is extremely hard on people's mental health so are things like relationship breakdowns the fact that people are more spread out, that work is less certain, there's more gig work, there's more short contract, fixed term contracts, all of those kind of things affect people's mental health. They have very little stability in their lives. Um, so social media is a really neat, easy answer, but it's not the answer at all. And there's very little research to support the fact that it has a negative impact on mental health. Now, that's not to say for some people they can have a negative effect from using it too much. Um, so they have problematic use of it, but not for everybody. The vast majority of people are using it and they're fine, but some people are using it because they're suffering from mental health issues and they're using it to cope or to distract themselves or to escape, or it might be exacerbating it, but they don't seem to be able to stop using it. They're, they're kind of compelled to use it. Yeah, because there's lots of people who will say that it's addictive, and and I, I I I do think that things like they're designed to be so things like Instagram and and all of that like the um, they're designed to be compelling. But addiction yeah. is something very specific with a biological component to mm. it, and there's no evidence, no good quality evidence at all that social media or gaming are addictive in any way. Um, so everybody uses it, but we also say things like I'm addicted to chocolate and coffee, yeah. um, and that's that's not true either. You know, when you look at addictions like drugs, the amount of people talk about, you know, well, social media releases dopamine when you get likes. The amount of dopamine it releases is very, very small. We also get dopamine when we eat food and chocolate, when we have sex. When we do things we enjoy, we get dopamine. But the amount of dopamine you get from drugs or alcohol is so much higher, hundreds or thousands of times higher. And so that is why that actually physically affects the brain chemistry and pathways and that's what causes addiction whereas doing something you enjoy isn't an addiction it's just yeah. doing something you enjoy um, and particularly with social media most of what we do in social media is connect with people that we're friends with um, yeah. and generally if it is people you know that you're connected to on social media 
it tends to be a more positive experience than if you just follow a lot of celebrities or people in the public eye. Um, that tends to lead to more comparison um, and comparison leads to envy and feeling less good about yourself, particularly when there's a big gap between you and them. Um, so following people and connecting with people you actually know that are your friends or people like you is more important. Yeah, I, th I, th I think that would be like quite an, an easy win for people to yes. do is to just have a look at like who they're following. Are yeah. they following Kim Kardashian? Do they want their bum all of a sudden just to look like Kim Kardashian's yeah. or even something like not as obvious as that, like following a footballer, some kind of celebrity who is similar to that person, but of course has had a wealth of different opportunities. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's and has a huge amount of wealth and access to all sorts of things that you would like, but are probably out of reach for most people um that can be yeah. problematic yeah and the message that's usually pushed is that it's not out of reach for you and you can do it too you just got to give me 30 quid yeah, yeah. <laughs> or if you work really hard and we all have the same 24 hours in a day and this kind of message you know we don't yeah. all have the same 24 hours in a day and lots of people are working really really hard in fact some of the poorest in society are working harder than anybody because they're working two mm -hmm. or three jobs just to survive um but they don't have the same 24 hours as someone who can pay someone else to do all of the things that they need to do that are mundane in their life yeah and and honestly i think as as the more money you earn i don't believe that, that makes you work harder than like someone who's on say minimum wage i'd say it's probably less so probably have yeah. less of a hard time than that person Absolutely. because they have to deal with the fact that they're getting paid pittance for it yeah and so much of their cognitive resources going into survival mm. um, and they don't have as much left for making something better for themselves or thinking creatively about how to do something better for themselves okay that's really interesting mm. oh that was a that was a tangent i didn't expect to, to go <laughs> yeah, down it wasn't too. on my list <laughs> um so just to think about online communication i know we've spoken about how people socialize through gaming and all of that but what makes online communication different to offline so a lot of it is that we often primarily communicate through text. You know, face-to-face, -face, obviously, you've got all of these social cues. You've got body language, tone of voice, facial expression. You can see whether somebody's blushing or sweating or stammering or, you know, nervous about something. Mm. Um, so you've got a lot of information, their tone of voice, their pitch. Everything gives you a, a lot of information. So a huge amount of the time when we're talking online with someone, we don't have that. Video chat is the obvious exception. It's still more controlled than um, you would be face to face because you can only see what's in frame. You can manage your frame. You see what you're looking at here is very tidy. You can't yeah. see the rest of the room. Oh, that's <laughs> <insane>. <laughs> so it creates a particular impression. Um, but when you're communicating through text, you're missing all of that information. Now, we're hard, -drived as, hard driven as humans to communicate. And so we're very good at adapting and we use lots of strategies to adapt. So people started out by using emoticons and all caps and exclamation marks and other punctuation in, to convey emotional information and social information. And since then, we have emoji and they're quite creative. There's a whole suite of them. Um, we've got GIFs. So there's all these different ways that we can add information in on top of the words that we're using. And so we're always communicating a huge amount of information, even in short messages. 
And then people are reading into those. And because we've got less information available to us, what we have takes on heightened meaning. Um, and we read more into that than we might, um, you know, in, in regular queue face to face. So there's a number of things that can happen from that. One is if you're communicating with people you don't know, you can get a different impression of them than what they're really like, particularly yeah. if, let's say, with something like online dating, where the intention is to meet eventually, but you're creating, you're putting forward a very positive image of yourself, you know, relatively accurate, but a very nice polished image of yourself. And because you've got more time to think about what you're writing, you can be a little bit wittier or smoother or funnier than you are offline because mm -hmm. uh, you can edit things. People aren't seeing them as they're coming out of your mouth. Um, you can, um, so you can create this particular image of yourself. The person on the other side reading it, it has limited information. So the cues you're sending them take on heightened importance. They read more into those. So they can start to get a very positive impression of you that's a little bit idealistic. Now, if you meet quickly, that's not really so much of a problem. They have a limited view of you and it tends not to be hugely accurate, but it's not necessarily an impediment to actually forming a relationship or, or making friends when you meet in person. If you do it over time, though, um, like longer than two weeks, say, and you're communicating by text a lot, there's something called hyperpersonal communication that can happen. And that's basically where the idealized view gets so um, kind of fantastical. It's, it's no longer related to what the person's like in real life. The gap between the fantasy and reality is so big that when you meet in person, you can't help but be disappointed. Even if the original nice person shows up, they don't match the creation you have in your head of that person. And so a lot of people who were dating during lockdown, um, they weren't able to meet in person. So they were talking online quite a lot. And even if they did a bit of video chat, that would help a bit. But it's still not the same as face to face. And often when they met in person, face to face, the person wasn't quite who they thought they were um, or it didn't quite match the impression that they had in their head. Um, and so it was quite disappointing. And so a lot of relationships that started online during lockdown didn't work out when people actually met face to face. That is fascinating. So the, mm. the trick with online dating is meet people early, disappoint them early. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> online dating is a numbers game. And the first date is really just like the final stage of the filtering process. Yeah. You filter through photos, bios for red flags, messages for red flags and to see if you have something in common, make sure they're not a ser serial killer. And then the, the date to make sure the vibes are okay. You're not, again, picking up red flags and that there's some chemistry, some interest between you. And then if it's going well, it sort of turns into a date. If it's not, it's quick coffee and out of there. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's definitely a weird world. I don't really like it that much. On online dating, I find it quite difficult, but I think that's just that shows more my intent with it because i'm like i'm not ready to take it seriously or i don't want to currently so I if i do people go... don't like it yeah you know even people who are trying to meet someone who are taking it seriously it's not necessarily an enjoyable process people find it very frustrating they get quite anxious about it um men and women have a very different experience of it they find it awful for different reasons yeah. <laughs> um, but it's not necessarily enjoyable. And that's why people will do it for a while and then take a break and then do it and then take a break because it's just a bit much sometimes. Yeah, you do notice that. Like I've I've had periods where I'll go on it and then someone will disappear for two weeks and then they're back again and they've got a new set of photos and new bio. And I'm yeah. like, oh, maybe this version of you is going to be, be the one who does it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, so you mentioned the difference in, in behaviors between like male and female and online dating. That was a really fascinating part of of the lectures. Do we call it an audiobook or a lecture? Lessons? Uh, the, they called it lectures. For me, it felt more like episodes, but either yeah. one's good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, your, your audio file, your piece of uh, <laughs> online media that you put together. Um, the differences between men and women in online dating seems vast like the opportunity um how would you sort of describe the difference in opportunity for men and women online so it's really interesting they have different very different experiences so women if you are relatively young and have a photograph you probably get lots of messages (laughs) Um, Older women get less messages, definitely, because as men get older, their preference for women stays in their 20s, like as 20, 21, 22, no matter how old they get. Uh, Whereas women (laughs) (laughs) women stays around the same age as themselves until they get quite old and then it drops by about five years. Um, But so older women don't get a lot of messages. But if you're a relatively young woman and you put up a photograph, you're going to get a lot of messages. Now, most of those messages, like on Tinder, the average, the median first message length is 12 characters, not words, characters. Uh, So that's like, hey, what's up? Uh, But 25% of them are six characters or less. That's basically hello. (laughs) That's it. Wow. So you're getting, say, 100 of these messages that all say hello. And so... And men also swipe on a lot of women. Um, And I'll explain why in a second. So women are getting tons of matches, uh, tons of messages. And so they just choose the best from those to respond to because they're not going to respond to them all. Most of them have made very little um, effort whatsoever. Um, And so men are getting very little response to all the messages they send. And that's what causes them anxiety and frustration. So they feel like nobody finds them attractive because nobody replies to them. But what happens is, because of that, men swipe right on a lot more people than women do. Women are quite picky. It comes from evolutionary psychology and also safety. So you want to make sure that the person's not a serial killer, but also you want the best possible people. You know, you've got a higher bar of what's kind of acceptable. Men will swipe right on almost everybody and then decide on whether they're interested if the person matches with them. Um, so women have a range of people to choose from. Men have very few. So their matching rate is something like 0.5%. Women's is about six to 10%. Um, so men get very few matches. And then because men are getting very few matches, they send even more short messages to everybody. Um, women get even more messages and their bar goes higher because they have all of these people to choose from. And so it's this vicious circle. Yeah. But on the other hand, women also get a ton more harassment and, you know, really negative behavior. And some of it is from men acting out, trying to get a response. So they start to say things that are like shocking or awful just to get an answer from somebody. And they'll also do things like if women say, look, I'm not interested, they'll persist and persist and persist to try and get something because they're feeling frustrated, Mm -hmm. um, which obviously isn't a good strategy. But women's experience, on the other hand, is getting dick pics, sexual messages that they weren't asking for, people continuing to contact them after they said they weren't interested, sometimes uh, threats of harm, physical harm, they'll get called names, abuse, like so many different things, younger women in particular, the LGBT community get even more. Um, 
people of color get even more. So it's a negative experience for two different reasons for men and women. Yeah. And I imagine is that abuse linked to who they are as a person, as, a, as the fact that they're a person of color or part of the LGBTQ community? Yeah. Yeah. So basically being of minority status in any way, also anything like disabled, um, anything like that increases the amount of abuse that people get and the kind of abuse that people get as well. Uh, Because men and women both get abuse online. The kind of abuse that they get is quite different. So women get physical threats, like rape threats, death threats, threats to their family um, and friends. Men get reputational threats. So calling them stupid, saying they're lying. It's quite different. Neither is good, but threats to your person cause a lot of anxiety um, for people that receive them. Yeah, that's dreadful, isn't it? And it's it seems that like mostly the perpetrators of of this abuse are men. Is that yes? That's where we know the gender (laughs) of of the people. It's like yeah, primarily ninety something percent men. It's hugely hugely male, which is problematic. And then men do things that they think are acceptable, like sending dick pics um, Mm. that obviously aren't acceptable. So there was very little research on this until recently. And I was so glad to see some come out to kind Mm. of because people had theorized about why it might be so. um, And we're mostly right, but not as right as I expected. So I thought that it would be kind of like for some people like flashing, which is not really about sex. That's about control. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's manipulative. You're trying to cause disgust or anger or shock in the other person, trying to control their emotions. So there's about ten percent of men that send dick pics for that reason, which is quite quite negative. Mm. Most other men are sending them because they think it's a successful mating strategy, uh, despite the fact that women have been saying for years that this is just so disgusting and that nobody wants it. Um, they send it because they think women will send pictures in return because they'll hook up with them. Um, they send it as a compliment. They send it because they think women will be excited to receive them, like sexually excited to receive them. Like none of these things are true. (laughs) And yes, this is why so many men send them. And then some send them because they're excited to send them. Um, but yeah, yeah, the the others, I don't know. I don't know what to tell them, (laughs) but they don't, they don't listen to women. So there was one study with young men, they were like 17 to 20. And they were asked, it was with men and with young men and women, and the women were all saying, I don't get why guys do this. It's so disgusting. And the guys were told that the, the girls had said this and they were asked what they thought. And they were like, well, they can't say they like it. They do like it, uh, but they can't say that because they'll be slut shamed. Yes. And so I don't know if you've come across Bo Burnham before. Um, yes. So yeah. in, in one of his songs in his recent um, thing on Netflix, he talks about like sending a dick pic and then he says something like don't be surprised you know you like it you whore and i think you're like obviously his comedy is, is he will say what the people he's taking the piss out of think mm-hmm. um and i think yeah. it's it's so bizarre that anyone could look down their trousers and think i'm gonna send a picture of that to someone they're gonna love it that will make their day yeah but if, if that's what they genuinely think. totally going to send that to somebody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. It's, it's bizarre. <laughs> and I, I feel like I, I might be, well, I'll be certainly in the minority of men to, who have who have had it on, on the other foot to a, a girl I didn't know. And I, and I think, like, I've got 
an all right amount of followers got a podcast that's probably how the person found me sent me a naked picture and i said please don't do that again um because oh weirdly i didn't like it either um and then they sent another one and i was like wow this must suck like when when it's with someone who might like then threaten to rape you or abuse you um or like start making threats against you it's like i'm not going to feel threatened by that i was just a bit taken aback thought it was a bit gross and annoying and thought god i hope that person gets Mm. some help but that's because the privilege of i don't feel threatened by things like that um yeah yeah yeah, it's uh they often are accompanied by (laughs) threats and harassment and they're often sent to very young girls you know Mm. 12 12 13 14 you know there's a study done talking about the effects of this and young women are so used to these they see them as just being part of being online they don't even see it as sexual harassment because it's so common but they talk about how they help manage their younger sisters social media they go in and delete them all before they can see them because they know that they'll be getting them when they're really young and they don't want them to have that experience because they did and when you get it when you're 12 it's frightening um and confusing and you don't understand it and yeah it's not not good yeah, well, I imagine it's quite frightening and confusing at any stage to be like, oh, well, I didn't want to see that penis today. Thanks. Because <laughs> you and can't li- control what you see, can you really? Yeah. Like, it just it's there and that's it. You've seen it. Yeah. And even within a relationship, sending a random picture like that in the middle of the day is disconcerting. Like, when people are in the mood for something like that, then there's a, a conversation happening about it and that's fine. Yeah. But if you're in a meeting and your partner sends you a picture like that, that's not appropriate either, you know? Yeah. So it warrants it's, a telling off. <laughs> yeah. It's the fact that it's coming from someone you don't know, but it's also just arriving in the middle of your day on LinkedIn or Twitter or whatever when you're in the middle of a conversation about something else. It's very, yeah. uh, very disconcerting for people. Just can't get away from the pee-pee. That's, <laughs> that's the thing. Um, so we spoke then about how the messages that men send are, are far shorter than women's and, and women's they tend to be quite a bit longer right that's yeah. that was i think their character limits was... almost a tweet yeah yeah so it's like <laughs> 122 i think was the median for women and 12 for men so quite a bit longer they put a bit more effort in and for successful online dating what like what are the tips for people to be able to have a profile that is well represents himself i guess is yeah. an accurate-ish representation of themselves. But the, the messaging that seems to be men could just do with putting a little bit more effort in to their first message and that'll make them stand out from yeah, the hundreds of, of other guys they're competing with. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So basically, the, the, <laughs> yeah, the more information that guys give, the better. So if you've got multiple photographs, you've got a bio, those really help because women are always looking for more information than guys, mostly because of security. So Mm. the more information we have, the less we feel the need to interrogate men to make sure that they're not a serial killer. Mm. Um, And there's evidence that the first conversations that happen between people in online dating are better quality conversations. They're less interrogatory Mm. if people have more information and more photographs in particular in their profile pictures because profile or you know the images that you put up support the things you're saying about yourself they show you in a way that's harder to fake you know you can say what you want in your pro in your bio 
but putting up photographs of you rock climbing or kayaking or with your dog or those kind of things, it's harder to fake that than to say, I like rock climbing and kayaking when you've only ever been once. Yeah. Um, so that match between the bio and the profile pictures is quite important. Um, and then making a bit of an effort in the uh, first message. Also not being negative. Negativity is something that really, really turns people off. Um, yeah. And also not having spelling mistakes, things like that as well. Really obvious stuff like that are mm. um, problematic for a lot of people. And I think one of the other things is a lot of men seem to create profiles that aren't designed for like a woman's eye. So they create profiles that other guys would like sometimes. Okay. Not all men at all. But they'll have something like, you know, a picture of them with the big fish that they caught. Women don't necessarily find big dead fish attractive or their what? car. Like, we're not interested in your car. <laughs> we want to know what kind of person you are. Um, so there's that kind of thing that a lot of guys do. Like, there's a whole Tumblr of Tinder guys with tigers where they're sitting, their profile picture is them beside a drug tiger. Like, that's also not terribly attractive. Yeah, that's, so guys that's hard understand. <laughs> <laughs> So like a smiley photograph with no sunglasses on because sunglasses hide your eyes and that's kind of a bit of a red flag. Yeah. Um, pictures where it's obvious who you are, you're not with a group of friends and we don't know which one of you are, mm. that kind of thing. Those kind of things are important. Yeah. And I've, I've seen, I can't remember if this was, was in the book or not, but I've, I've seen before people talking about the preferences of um, women online that don't actually marry up with the population data of like what's available um and this mostly is around about like height is that is that true is there any truth in that so women do have a some women have preference for height it's actually pretty far down the list a lot of men think it's the number one preference of women um and so a lot of men increase their height so okay cupid did a piece of research on their own user base at one point and they found the bell curve of height for men in america uh, didn't quite match the bell curve of height for men on OkCupid in America. It was the OkCupid guys were on average two inches taller the entire way across the bell curve, which means that almost everybody was adding two inches to their height. Wow. Um, which means that if you don't, everybody will assume you're two inches shorter than you said you were. So everybody feels they have to. So there's a bit of, well, everybody else is doing it. I feel like I have to exaggerate as well. Um, and that's one of the people give all sorts of reasons, some of which are quite reasonable for why they tell little white lies on online dating. So a lot of people slightly exaggerate or um, aren't 100% truthful or don't tell you the bad things about them. They just tell you the positive things. That stuff tends to be quite acceptable in online dating. Yeah. Outright lies about who you are using someone else's profile pictures, using ones that are very out of date completely lying about your height or job or something like that. Much, much less acceptable, obviously. Yes. Um, there's a, a term that I came across for it, kitten fishing. So it's not cat fishing. You're not pretending to be somebody else entirely, but you're also not exactly yourself either. Like the exaggerations are a bit too far to be accurate. But I think one of the things about online dating is that people find it very frustrating trying to create a profile that represents them. Um, you've got limited amount of information to share and you have to be quite careful because what I was saying before about when you've limited information, the cues and the information you have takes on heightened importance. Mm. So every little thing you write can be read into in so many different ways. So women will avoid saying anything that might sound sexual because if they put something like that, 
all they get are messages from guys yeah. looking for hookups. Um, so cues can really take on, you know, a life of their own because there's so yeah. little information available. Wow. God, I feel like I'm going to have to put so much pressure on myself to next time I take the plunge into online dating. <laughs> I think a useful strategy is to get your friends to help. Women do it quite mm. a lot, but men don't do it as much. And then you can see whether it's actually kind of an accurate representation of who you are. And they can be, you know, they can give good advice on, on picking better pictures and things. Yeah. So specifically, men get your female friends to help because obviously if you're getting your guy friends to help you're just going to end up with a fish and a ferrari <laughs> yeah, yeah. absolutely well that is fascinating i think i think the online dating world that obviously people can listen to to the book to to get more on that but it's, it's a fascinating part of of the series and the last thing i'd just like to touch on is, is screen time because i have spent a long time worried about my screen time I said I spend probably more time thinking about my screen time than I do actually looking at the screen um because <laughs> I I kind of came to the conclusion that it was just like a negative thing to do to just be staring at a screen um I think particularly on the phone the phone is where I I still feel like it's a little bit meh because it's it removes context from from the world, which I've, I've found a bit of a shame, especially when I see people outside on it. But that's like my bias towards I like outside. Not everyone does. <laughs> yeah. Um, Not everyone so, does, yeah. So screen time is neither good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Is that generally the, the way to look at it? <laughs> yeah. It depends how it makes you feel. It depends what you're doing. You know, if you're spending 12 hours watching pornography that's probably not going to be so good for you because mm. um, it's probably going to displace other activities um, same with doing anything you know if you're a stamp collector and you spend 12 hours a day managing your stamp collection that's probably also not going to be good for you because you're running out of time to actually socialize eat work or study um, sleep, etc. You know, it's it's probably excessive, so that might be problematic about how you're using it. Um, but with something like social media and screen time, so screen time is so broad. Screen time is anything that you're doing on a screen, which could be looking at TV through Netflix or Prime or anything like that. It could be online shopping. It could be banking. It could be email. It could be work. It could be talking to your grandmother. It could be talking to your friends, gaming with your friends. Like that is basically life but it just happens that you, you're doing some of that through the screen rather than yeah. in person which is absolutely fine um i think there's a number of ways in which it can be problematic so if you're say on twitter for four hours and you're connecting with other people you're having great conversations you're reading really good stuff and you come away for it feeling that was really interesting that's fine if you spend four hours on twitter just looking at all the terrible things that are happening in the world and you come away from it feeling awful, that's not so great. So how you feel about it is more likely to impact on your kind of temporary short-term well-being. If you come away from things generally feeling good, that's absolutely fine. It's going to impact on your well-being in a positive way for a short time. Only for a short time, maybe a half an hour. It's not long-term. Mm. But if you're constantly engaging in arguments or looking at really depressing things, um, 
in a way that it's not contributing to the betterment of the world. You know, I look at, I engage with lots of social issues online, but I try and do it in a way that's positive and that's looking for solutions rather than just looking at everything that's terrible in the world. So usually I come away from Twitter feeling pretty good about things rather than negative. So how you feel about it is good. So it's useful for people if they're worried about it to maybe keep a journal for a week or two and see how you're feeling after you use social media. A lot of what we do in social media is connecting with our friends. Um, and there's a group of researchers that put together a really nice study um, where they created a addiction scale, an off offline friend addiction scale. Um, and they used a social media addiction scale. But instead of saying, you know, do you think about social media a lot? Do you get upset when you can't access social media? They just exchanged social media for friends. And what they found was over 70% of people were addicted to seeing their friends, mm -hmm. which of course is ridiculous because seeing your friends is a really healthy, positive thing. But most of what we do on social media is connect with our friends. So how can the social media scale be measuring something that's so terrible for us when actually what we're doing is connecting with people? So those addiction scales for things like technology, social media, and so on, are hugely problematic in so many ways. So generally how you feel about it is good. And then there's displacement theory where, you know, we should have a relatively balanced life. We should be getting a bit of exercise or movement. We should be eating, sleeping, and then we probably have schoolwork, college that we should be doing to a reasonable level um, and our relationships. If what you're doing online, whether it's gaming or porn or social media or working or anything, is really negatively impacting in those other areas, then you've got problematic use. But if it's not, you're just doing something you enjoy. So if people are spending six hours gaming, they're just doing something they enjoy, providing the rest of their life is pretty operational and functional. Um, same as if they were reading for six hours, we wouldn't be worried about someone and saying that they're potentially addicted or, you know, that it's, it's a huge problem if they were reading for six hours. But we are when that is happening through a screen. Yeah, so we, I guess we kind of just pathologize it when it's yeah. something to do with our behavior online and we'll, we'll make it out to be an addiction or what, whatever you want to call it. But really, it's just, I guess, not even problem use or no. I guess it's subjective it, like, to the individual. Be, it's like, a, yeah, it is. So there's a small number of people who definitely have problematic use of particular kinds of technology like gaming or so on. Um, but you'll often find that, almost always find that there's something else underlying it. They have a mental health issue. They have problems at home. You know, there's something going on that they're maybe escaping from. People have often used those kinds of things to escape. So some people use drugs. I would say mm. gaming is probably less problematic than using drugs um, because at least it's not a physical addiction. So it might be easier to actually solve that problem. Um, but gaming itself isn't necessarily the problem. It's a symptom of the problem. Um, for some people, but it's not necessarily the problem itself. That's why I really like talking to academics because you look at things in like the most sensible of ways because it, <laughs> it makes so much sense and it will probably be quite liberating for some people to hear that because no doubt stuff I've said about social media or tech in the past has made people think about it in, in a more negative way. So it's, it's nice to hear an objective and rational approach to it, um, which yeah. one of the, my favorite things about your book um 
Thank you. Which concludes conversation. It's been so nice to chat to you. And um, obviously, you've you've got that's on Audible, and I'll, I'll put a link to that in the description of this episode. But what what else do you do, like in the public, or where can people find you, follow you, stuff like that? So I have a website, nicolafoxhamilton.com. So anything that I do um, in the media, I put up there. So you'll find clips about all different kinds of topics, and anything I've written um, will go up there. I've written book chapters. We've got a new book. Um, so my colleagues uh, in IADT, the Institute of Art, Design, Technology in Dunleary, wrote a book called the, An Introduction to Cyberpsychology, which is sort of an introductory textbook suitable for undergrads or postgrads. And it's really kind of easy to read. It's a good academic intro, but there's a new version of that coming out uh, next year. So that will be up there once I do that. Oh, nice. Um, so anything like that that I'm doing will be up on my website. And also on Twitter, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm very, very much on Twitter. <laughs> but it's not problem use. <laughs> no, it's not. It's purely for work. <laughs> yeah. And what's, sorry, what's your Twitter handle? My Twitter handle is at Foxnick. And I'm also on Instagram. I don't do as much cyber psychology stuff there, but I do put a little bit up. And I think I'm at Nicola FH on Instagram. Find it. I'll be able to find it. Cool. <laughs> Thank you so much. I've learned so much in this conversation. It's been great. Good. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. And thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed the book as well. Well, thank you very much for listening to that episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. All of the stuff you need for Nicola, if you want to follow her work or anything like that, is in the description of this episode. Uh, same for the sponsors of the show. You've got BetterHelp, Athletic Greens. You can get a book on Audible. You can buy me a coffee. There's loads of different ways you can support me if you want to. But hey, I appreciate it. I've been away for a month. Why the hell would you want to? Uh, I'll be back soon with some more interesting conversations. I've got Law of Attraction debunked by David Grimes. I've got The Future of Farming with George Monbiot. I've got Dr. Mike, uh, the third or second. I don't know which Dr. Mike it is. He's been on the podcast as well. And these are all coming up in, in the coming weeks. So I'm back. Thank you very much for your patience. You absolute heroes. If you wouldn't mind sharing the episode, that'd be great. But that is it from me. I love the shower of you. Goodbye. <laughs>